Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Before we begin, I just want to make sure that uh, you are encouraged and know that you're appreciated. If you would make any size donation to our Patreon account at Patreon, we go under the name of the Dojo Sension Center. And please feel encouraged to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Sension One, and also follow us on Facebook at Sension Center. In this episode, I'm going to read and comment upon a blog entry. If you haven't subscribed to our blog at our website, please again feel encouraged to do so. The website is at www.sensioncenter.com and you'll see a menu wherein you can subscribe to our blog. This blog entry came um, via the internet, so I think it is pretty relevant to Aikido today, but maybe not in the usual way. So I'll be reading this piece and commenting upon it, expanding upon ideas like in the last episode. So let's begin. I was asked the following question by an online fellow walker of the path. Can you share any thoughts or ideas concerning how a dojo can retain and encourage women to remain in this art? This question was posed in response to a photo posted on the Ascension Center Facebook page. The photo is the cover photo to this blog entry. The context of the photo should be noted. The photo was not taken to show the number of women currently training at Ascension Center. After all, the photo does not capture that total. Rather, the photo captured those deshi that were showing the kind of discipline that is necessary to train under my tutelage, the kind of discipline that creates space for daily training. In fact, the photo was taken not so much to show who was there on that particular training day, but rather to show those who were not there that they were not there when others were. It was a message to my other deshi, other women, other men, and even two of my own children, people that opted to stay in bed that morning instead of training. In particular, the main target for the message was my youngest son, truth be told, as he is in the process of learning how training cannot be dependent upon the desire to train. He is learning that he is not his desire and that a warrior cannot limit himself or herself to such an identity. This is a universal message, I feel, a universal lesson. So the photo was shared with other members and then with followers on our Facebook page. Without assuming the motivation for the asking of the question, let it be said that my approach to training in the art and to teaching the art is at odds with the progressive and or postmodern discursive context 
the context that usually supports questions along gender lines. This is because in many ways the progressive agenda is an extension of what historical Budo would label spiritual immaturity. The progressive agenda has at its core the assigning and aligning of an identity, a dichotomous and antagonistic experience of the world, and it pauses that the locus of experiential control is located external to the subject and not internal to the subject. Budo, in contrast, sees all of, the, all of this as delusion, as the unconscious functioning of the ego tripartite, and Budo takes at his, as its aim the deconstruction of this tripartite, not its unquestioned and continuous functioning. That said, the dojo's main training program is currently 59% women Aikidoka. A caveat is in order then. It is likely, therefore, that the progressive reader may like our achievement, but not like how we achieved it. Please, therefore, read the following with a grain of salt, and hopefully with open eyes and with an equally open mind. And please note that one must do something differently from others in order to achieve results different from others. At Sension Center, we do most things differently from what is often done in contemporary Aikido. There's some things that I mentioned up to here that may be glossed over. Um, and I don't think they should be because I think they kind of fix problems such as the one that may have generated this question. such as the one of a reduced or a loss of diversity in a dojo. It's quite a common position in those wisdom traditions that are at the origins of Budo that one aligns themselves with nature or with the Tao some greater entity that functions outside and beyond our own fear, pride, and ignorance, outside of our own limited and by default often inaccurate subjective worldview. And with that position comes the notion that if you act in accordance with that greater entity or that greater rule or energy, that things fix themselves. And that was kind of mentioned in here, just very quickly. And I want to point that out. So some of those things mentioned are daily training. I would say that the dojo that is ran or runs classes two to three times a week or that even allows for Deshi to train two to three times a week 
is a dojo that is out of accordance with the natural order of Budo. Here's why. It's, it's not any kind of moral reason. It's a practical reason. And an example I often use is comparing Budo to the learning of a language. And even as I give this example or this analogy, one has to note that Budo is much more complicated than learning a language. But if you wanted to learn a language different from your primary language, you're not going to learn it with an hour, you know, Monday, an hour Wednesday, an hour Friday. You can kind of stutter along, maybe follow some parts of a conversation. But when we use the word learning, we're talking about fluency. You, you will not be fluent in that language with so few a committed time. You're going to need many, many more hours. And anybody who seeks full fluency in a language always has to take that last step. You're going to have to go live where that language is the primary language. I've never seen anyone not make that last step and actually be fluent in that second language. And in that kind of practice comes with it all kinds of subtle sacrifices and adjustments and adaptations. And they're so numerous and sometimes so subtle that they're not recognized. Maybe some of them become recognized in hindsight, but not at the moment of their functioning. And traditional martial arts training, like all traditional pedagogies, uses this notion of, um, you know, get yourself in the ballpark, act like a ball player, and you will learn the game. A lot of the overt instruction that we have in today's academic settings is just not part of the traditional setting. And so even, and, and the reason for that is because you're after something, you're after a new natural state such as fluency. You're not after a digestible set of information, you're, you're after a new state of being or a new personality. And that cannot be learned through chapters and headings and outlines. It, it cannot be learned that way. So I can use my own language experience and, you know, if you felt that this is akin to yours, you know, let us comment. Send us an email or a message through our uh, many outlets and share it because I think this is quite common as I was, um, as I saw every other person that was trying to get fluent in the second language ended up doing the same thing. 
and you can act you actually learn without anybody really telling you that this is what you have to do so when i started my bachelor studies um and i was starting to emphasize on in japan i went to their language courses you know and you had you did like an hour a day and you can get through like the first language course whatever that was japanese one or what have you um but in not too short a time somewhere near the end of that course or halfway through that course and definitely as you get up to the third class you you can't you can't survive you can't stay up with just going to class so they would have these lab hours where you would go and listen to the, these audio tapes and things like that and the course was every day monday through friday so it was a five unit course one hour each day but if you wanted to pass the class you had to spend many more hours each day in that lab listening to their audio supplements and that was just to pass the class because there is some gap between a testing requirement and then the state of being you're after and that same thing holds true in aikido there is some gap between let's say rank and skill there while rank feigns to be uh, emblematic of skill it's not and there is always some gap between our symbol and the thing that it represents so we're just talking about not getting f's on your exams so for a five unit class you might be spending three more hours in that lab each day that's 15 it's 20 hours you're giving to this supposedly five hour class and then as you get more advanced in these classes you realize i am just speaking way too much english all the other hours of my day so you start to hang out with your friends in the Japanese class or you, 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 and you set up these kind of groups where you go, we don't speak English anymore, uh, you don't speak Chinese anymore, you don't speak Korean anymore, we're all going to just speak Japanese, that's how we're going to communicate. But you realize it's still not enough. Again, you're able to not fail the classes, but your goal was this fluency, this state of being. And it's still not enough. If you look at classical training systems, if you, for example, you, you look at any kind of mentorship, it really was about living whatever it is, whatever skill you're trying to develop. It's not because these pedagogies were not as enlightened as us and they didn't have computers and PowerPoint and all this other stuff. It's because they're after a state of being. And you can PowerPoint all day long and you're not going to make this transformation. The transformation in many ways, is not so related to your hours of commitment, but better understood through your hours 
of sacrifice. So all the things you stop doing really have a bigger play in all the things you do. So from my basic one-hour-a-day Japanese classes and my clubs, and I realize I'm still not fluent, um, you go to these intensive courses. So from where I was doing my bachelor's work, I went to Berkeley, and you do this coursework where it's five hours a day. But it, again, if you pay attention, you're really speaking English much, much more than you are speaking Japanese. You haven't sacrificed your primary language. You haven't sacrificed, done away with, chipped away with like a sculpture, dropped, like Dogen says. You haven't dropped the old you. And so this transformation into fluency, this kind of being, is not possible even then. And it's about this time that most people that go on to be fluent realize this and they go, well, forget it, I got to go live in Japan. And you go live in Japan where you, you, you switched the amounts. You might be able to speak English here or there, but it's, it's few and far between. And most of your time is spent speaking Japanese. Then, then you can get fluent. So when I was in Japan, for example, I, when I first got there, even with years of you know, academic study, there were people who I met who never attended any kind of, of uh, language classroom time. Never. Not, nothing even as prestigious as Berkeley's intensive language courses. And they spoke better Japanese than I did when I first got there. They had a better ear for it. They understood the body language that goes with the speak. Um, they knew the slang. They knew the abbreviated forms. They knew every things that you just can't get when you're working out of so structured a system. And this process of becoming is very much in alignment with traditional understandings of how people learn. That is to say, get yourself in accordance with whatever end goal you're trying to achieve. So if you're trying to take your body, let's just say, your body-mind from a state of fear, threat, reactivity, where someone pushes on you, you push on them, someone pulls on you, you pull on them, and you're trying to find out how you can embody um, non-contestation and reconcile all conflict, but the majority of your time is spent pushing on pushing, pulling on pulling, engaging in conflict, not deconstructing conflict, you will not be able to do this. You have not sacrificed your old you. What I see instead is usually because the majority of our time, let's say, let's just take a Monday where a person goes and does the hour or the two hours of classes on that day. That leaves up to 22 other hours spent 
with the old self they're trying to drop. If you just follow the rules of practice and of training, wherein the amount of hours that you spend are proportionate to the skill that you develop, you have 22 hours going towards the training of the very self that you're trying to let go of. What is more likely to happen is that old self comes into your Aikido class and actually usurps the training. Meaning, you come and you do Ikkyo and you are doing the same thing. Pushing on pushing, pulling on pulling, not deconstructing conflict. That, that is what most often happens. It's, it's, those two hours are not enough. So how much then two hours here or one hour here or one hour there? It's just not going to happen. And so all of those things, all of those problems that are unknown, unseen, so subtle, but yet have an impact on our self-transformation, they just are not being addressed. They're not being generated. And just giving ourselves the correct amount of time necessary for the goal that we have to or want to achieve, just acting in accordance is going to help solve a lot of things. I th in other words, I think if you have a dojo that only trains, only has classes here or there, or that supports a culture where members train only here or there, you're going to see an a-natural manifestation. So, for example, in, in relation to this article... The population is roughly 50-50 across gender lines. If our dojo is in accordance with, let's just say, nature, whatever greater aspect or entity you want to consider, let's say the Tao, then my dojo should be representative of nature itself. Now, as we have a dojo that trains only here or there or allows members or supports a culture where members train only here or there, that is a dojo out of accordance with the goal that you want, let's, let's say uh, the Aiki body-mind. It is therefore out of accordance with the Tao, and as a result, it will be out of accordance with nature, meaning you will not have a dojo that is representative of the natural world. You, you have some sort of skewed or corrupted, degenerated aspect of nature. So I would not be surprised at all that if you were to track dojo via this classical understanding that has only classes three days a week, I would, my money would go on, we're, gonna, we're going to see... Um, not a 50-50 split across gender lines. But you can fix that just by becoming in accordance. And daily training is in accordance. Training here or there is out of accordance. You don't, you don't have to try. 
uh, along any kind of um, affirmative type actions. You don't have to. You just get yourself in accordance and nature will present itself as nature is. The second thing to draw out here, per classical systems relevant to Budo, this notion of identity, and so by extension, identitarian politics, is really quite contrary to what we're trying to achieve in Budo. The Do of Budo is the way, the Tao, it is a tying back or an extension of East Asian wisdom traditions. Traditions that in particular made a problem of identity. In other words, and to be frank, all the crap in the world, all the suffering, all the hatred, all the inability to feel love and to practice love, all compassion, all, all, that, I, I, all that inability to feel compassion, all of that negativity, these wisdom traditions landed in the same exact place with the same exact answer. Attachment to self. Attachment to self is why you're suffering. And they'll express that in different ways. If you take O-sensei's way, you have the Ichide, you have the Spirit of God is in you. That's your ultimate reality. Not, not who you are now. Who you are now is actually a delusion. Dave Valadez, the male... Californian, American, heterosexual, educated, middle class. This is all delusion. This is all cultural fiction that I have not seen through yet. And this is why I say um, the progressive agenda is an extension of what historical Buddha would label spiritual immaturity. So I mentioned this phrase too, this ego tripartite. And this is a kind of simplified, modernized um, discourse that I use to sum up all of those wisdom traditions that I just mentioned. What, what do they all have in common? What are they all saying? 
What is Buddha supposed to be achieving as a Tao, as a way? Okay, so we, we have had podcasts and writings on the ego tripartite. But uh, just to sum it up here really quickly, what, what are we like when we abide in this delusion? When we buy into our cultural fictions? Well, we have our mind and there's an aspect of our mind that is predisposed for this delusion. This aspect I call the ego tripartite. It is a three-part simultaneous arising self-feeding mechanism consisting of the I, the ego, the self, the identity. A dichotomous worldview. And a preferential avoidance behavioral pattern. So if we go to our martial art, rather than being able to do a technique through Aiki, which is a communion, which is a loss of dichotomy, which can only exist via a loss of self or a, a release of self or detachment of self. I do. I experience Uke coming in and trying to get me. I experience the contact with this other person through the fear-threat cycle. And I put it on that preference-avoidance behavioral pattern, and I go, I'd rather not be attacked. I'd rather not feel weak to them. I'd rather feel superior to them, more powerful than they. But I'm in a state of reactivity, so when they push on me, I push on them. When they pull on me, I pull on them. I participate in the conflict but I do not realize that it's my participation that generates the conflict. I cannot release the self. I cannot practice non-contestation. I simply try to alleviate my fear by overpowering the other. When you look at the progressive agenda from this point of view, it makes sense why the effort to equalize gender representation is always coupled with shifts in power. That is not an automatic connection. But it is from the ego tripartite. It is from our will to power. It is from our attachment to our identity. It will always happen like that. But classical systems of thought and behavior, especially those particular to Budo, is, hey, get yourself in accordance and the natural world will represent itself 
without effort. Wu Wei. Back to the piece. As a start to what follows, here is a summary of our women Aikidoka demographics. Currently, the dojo's main training program has 13 women and 9 men. Of these women, like all our members, most train daily, 2 to 4 hours per day. Two women members train about half that much per week. Two women members currently train considerably less per week. Our women, I'm sorry, our women members are now mostly professionals or students, more highly educated than less educated, and currently have a surplus income. Three are married, one having no children, two having more than one children, more than one child. All or half of their children train in the dojo. Three are not married with children. For two, all or half of their children train in the dojo. For one, her children do not currently train in the dojo. The remainder are single women without children. The women Aikidoka in our dojo's main training program currently range from 11 years old to 52 years old. Most of them are under 40 years old, with over half in their 30s or, and younger, with most under 30 years old being under 24 years old. All as a result of their training have an operational strength to weight ratio and are either highly objectively mobile or highly mobile for their age and individual situation. Racial and ethnically, eight are white, three are Asian, one is black, one is Hispanic. Some practice a religion, some do not, some are secular, some are not. So, um, there's a diversity that shows up, but without effort towards that end. Even if we look at these demographics um, in terms of educational level and class, I'm going to say there, that there's really not that much diversity. And I think this is common to Aikido. I think it's common to martial arts, let's say that. It's common to martial arts training. I think martial arts training for most people in the United States, or let's just say in my area, is a luxury item. And that's why I mentioned the surplus income. I think this has a lot to do with why in most places it's so male dominant because I think you're going to see a surplus income more among males than not especially when you compare it to either a young woman or a single mother with children so for example um, in my youth we grew up at, under the poverty line and we had a single mom with four children and there was no way that you're going to um, you know when you're living off government issued American cheese you're not going to have enough money to go and train in the martial arts 
Now, one thing to note in our demographics, while everybody currently is above uh, the poverty line and currently does have a surplus income, that was not always the case. And our dojo has a policy that anyone can train for free. Uh, anyone can train all the way from contributing nothing, as I said, for free, or contributing whatever they can when they can. And they can do that at any time. And so many of these women, especially the ones with children or the younger ones, um, there were great periods of time when they were not with surplus income but were able to train, including their children, um, because there was no dues requirement for them. Now, some of the business-minded people might be going, well, that's crazy. Every, everyone's going to train for free, and they're just going to say they, they don't. And again, if you are training in accordance with the Tao, it takes care of itself. And in fact, there's many benefits from doing things this way. So this person, let's say, this person is not going to train at your dojo if they cannot afford to train at your dojo. Now that's one less person on your mat. And there's, in my experience from a business perspective, there's almost nothing more um, repellent to the prospective student or let's, because they'll consider themselves a shopper. Right? They're going to come in, they're going to look at your school, they're going to look at other schools, and this other school is very crowded, has a very crowded mat, and your mat is not very crowded. So if you have this person who can't train on your mat, won't be on your mat because you can't collect money from them, you're actually going to lose, more likely lose that next person who would have a surplus income or could have a surplus income and provide those funds to you and your effort. So again, if you're in accordance with the Tao, it all works out. Hey, you, you can't contribute and you don't have enough for your child? Sure, come on in. Next person comes in, they do have a surplus income and they do train and they do contribute funds. But as I said, so we, we had a lot of women, as I, uh, you know, especially the ones that had children. It's a very, very hard life. Um, single motherhood. Um, they were oftentimes below the poverty line, as, as I was as a child with my mom. But the other thing we do is the dojo has to be a community. If, if I am going to commit acts of violence upon another person's being, and I'm doing that for training purposes, if, if you don't have this larger, deeper sense of community, this is, again, you're not in accordance with what you're doing. And so the way that we see the dojo community, it's kind of a sangha, like, like the Buddhist community. So we're all there to support each other in our efforts to transform ourselves. Well, if I, if I don't have food to eat, 
or I don't have car rides, or I don't have childcare, or I don't have an education, it's very difficult to now do this kind of luxury training of self-transformation. So in our dojo, let's, let's just some examples here. Some of these single mothers who had children uh, were supported through their education, gaining their education, gaining um, their employment, acquiring housing, etc., etc., so that at now today they actually, some of them, make more money than I do. And they contribute hugely, hugely, without request and without question to the needs of the dojo. So you need to have, um, again, it goes back to this, just be in accordance. Be in accordance with what you're trying to achieve. Be in accordance with this greater entity. Be in accordance with the Tao. So while we are kind of uh, homogenous now in terms of income and education and class level. We, we were not always the case. That was not always the case. And I'm sure it won't be again soon because that is part of the natural world. COVID has done a lot for the last year. We don't, we're not taking new members, but um, there'll always be this shift across what, what is your natural environment? Okay, that is what should be in your dojo. If you are in accordance with nature, that is what should be in your dojo. Continuing on. Through the years, our dojo demographics generally demonstrate this 50-50 split along gender lines. Sometimes there are more men than women, and sometimes, as now, there are more women than men. However, the difference is never a great one. In my mind, in an art claiming to be the universe, as O-sensei said, in an art based upon yin-yang theory, this 50-50 split is indicative of a dojo soundly on the path. I would caution any dojo to relook at itself and at its alignment with the way if it is dominated by one gender over another. Any great difference in percentages is likely indicative of a dojo off of the path and may be indicative of dojo unwellness. For me, the same thinking would apply to a radical split in age. A dojo dominated by either the young or by the old is likely an unwell dojo, a dojo off the path. Such a dojo is operating too far outside of the universal and has become overly specialized in whom and in what it addresses. Such a dojo, therefore, should heed the caveat holding that any specialization denotes great ignorance. So in the demographics, you heard that our oldest um, woman, Aikidoka, is 52 years old. I myself am 54 years old. And a lot of people don't realize that when they watch our videos. Um, and here's another example of, of having your dojo be in accordance. So you have a couple choices. You can, um, when, it, when it comes to the physicality or the physical requirements of, of learning Aikido, what I find is that most dojo don't 
have that be part of learning the art. In fact, in some ways, learning the art is outside of one's physicality. And again, that is something, regardless of your understanding of the art, whether it's martial or spiritual, that is something really that is only possible because you already deviated from what is required in terms of number of hours of training. So, for example, uh, to take one's physicality off the training is only possible when you only train a few hours a week. To do any kind of physical activity four to six hours a day, you're going to have to be in shape. I don't care if it's walking. And if there is a need to be in shape, then training toward that need should be part of your dojo's curriculum. That, that means the athleticism of each deshi is the responsibility of the dojo-cho outside of learning Aikido technical architectures. And so that athleticism is a requirement of another accordance, and therefore that athleticism is also an accordance that you have to meet. At our dojo, every, we have a gym. We have a full-blown gym inside the dojo. When we first started, it started out with just push-ups and you know, body weight exercises, just push-ups, sit-ups, that kind of stuff. Uh, because who comes in your dojo? If it is the natural world that is coming into your dojo, well, especially here in the United States, you're going to have more obese, obese people on the mat than not. And if it's people with surplus income, again, you're going to have more inactive, desk-sitting people than not. And yet, they have to become an athlete that can function at the apex of, of athleticism. That is martial contest or martial viability. Which is the precursor of all sports. So we started out with just, you know, wow, you're just not strong enough. Well, let's get some body weight exercises going. Then we splurged and we got some pull-up bars to go in whatever doorway we had. And then it was kettlebells. And, you know, and little by little, we just add equipment. Again, you have your sangha in place. You help people gain their surplus income. And these things start to be purchased through the Sangha, by the Sangha, for the Sangha. It's not a quick process, but it's one that happens naturally. And today, we have four squat racks, five benches. It's one of probably one of the best uh, freeway gyms in our area, in a martial arts school. And we have classes geared totally just towards physical fitness. It's part of the curriculum. In the same way, each member, if they, are they part of the Sangha or not part of the Sangha? Do I trust them or do I not trust them as the business owner? Because if I don't trust them, then they're not part of the Sangha. And why am I teaching them if I don't trust them? And how is it that I can teach them 
while not trusting them. This is all out of accordance behavior. So I, they are in the Sangha. I do trust them. That's why they're in the Sangha. That's what makes the Sangha. And so every one of our members has a key to the dojo where they can access that gym at any time and access the mat at any time. So maybe they can't meet make the body conditioning class. They can go at their own time. Or maybe they want more, more fitness than just what is in the actual curriculum because they're trying to meet those four to six hours a day, that kind of cultural expectation. So they have a key and they can go do that. And when you do that, the discrepancy between the the so-called old and the young goes away. It just goes away naturally. I don't have to try to uh, recruit young people and I don't have to try to um, get rid of older people because they're bringing down the training. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. There's no effort needed. If you are in accordance... It's just wu-wei. It happens on its own. Our older people don't operate, don't function, don't take space like older people in other dojo. They're fit. They can train hard and they can train long. And they don't get injured. And if they do, they don't take forever to heal and they do heal. They're not holding back the young. The young are trying to stay up. And the young come and they see, oh, I can get stronger. I can get faster. I can get more supple, more mobile. Continuing. What follows will consist of three parts. First, I would like to give the reader two sets of examples of program elements Sension Center has in place to address some aspects of recruitment and retention overall. These program elements may work to address two common obstacles to training, and these obstacles may be more difficult for women to overcome than for men to overcome. The obstacles in question are the financial obstacle and the social obstacle. In providing these list of examples, I will only provide those program elements that, in my experience, are not commonly practiced by most other Aikido dojo, thinking this is what of it is of interest to the reader. The list in question, therefore, are not exhaustive lists. Second, I will discuss my personal assumption on why Aikido as a whole sees less practitioners every year, particularly less younger practitioners. This by extension would mean, I am hypothesizing, less women Aikidoka overall as well. I will posit that this overall decline in practitioners is something that has to be addressed, either before or alongside any effort to increase the number of women Aikidoka. For, at least from a progressive point of view, it seems absurd to ask or to expect women to train in Aikido when nearly no other demographic wants to outside of older white men. My theory is that Sension Center's training program is doing something different from most other training programs in contemporary Aikido, and it is this that is being reflected in its crowded mat 
and in the and in the makeup of its mat. Um, part of this is a kind of response to a a kind of short study that Aikido Journal did. It's they titled it Special Report. And we have an episode, episode 44, where I addressed uh, this point in great detail. So please go listen to that episode if you haven't. It's titled Chiba Sensei in His Own Words, an Aikido Journal Special Report. This piece here goes into it in that, again, I don't think the progressive aim is the way to solve this problem. I think the classical way of living in accordance uh, and letting the problem fix itself is the solution. But go listen to that episode, episode 44, and you'll get more into that. So um, I hope up to here you you can follow that. What I'm saying is if, if the overall population of Aikido practitioners is diminishing more and more and more so that mats are not crowded at all, it seems that that would have to be fixed first before we start having um, this great recruitment of half of the population. Like It just doesn't seem that that can happen. Continuing. Lastly, and primarily as a means of testing my own theory, I went ahead and reached out to my female deshi after having written the first two parts of this blog entry. I asked them to submit, quote, one to two paragraphs on why they train at the dojo. Not all of the women training at Ascension Center have responded to my request by the posting of this blog entry, but enough have so as to provide the reader with a sense of motivational cohesion regarding how the dojo's program elements and philosophical orientation may be working to support a 59% women Aikidoka majority in the dojo. It should be said that many of the respondents stated they felt constrained by the one to two paragraphs and that they could not adequately express all of the reasons why they train under our, our format. Nevertheless, I believe it is reasonable to conclude that the one to two paragraph parameters function to denote their strongest motivations for why they train, which is what seems most relevant to this discussion here. I will present their submissions anonymously, without editing, and without commentary. It will be up to the reader to make any interpretive assumptions, working hypotheses, and or theoretical conclusions. Now we go into part one. So this is an obstacle that I think uh, addresses um, anybody who's trying to learn martial arts. But in all likelihood, in our experience, it seems to impact negatively more women than men. And that is the financial obstacle. Sension Center has program elements that address the financial challenges of training. It is reasonable to assume that these elements benefit those younger people not yet having a surplus income, people from a single-income household, and are those in the process of developing themselves professionally. 
women in the process of completing their education and or professional training, single mothers, recently divorced women, etc. could fall into this group. Therefore, it is reasonable to believe that women could be aided at a practical level by these program elements. Here are some of the elements Sension Center has in place to address the financial challenges of training. So these, these are program aspects that we have uh, that allow people to train without that needed surplus income. Again, it is my experience that both, both firsthand, both as when uh, government American cheese was the main course at our table, uh, up to running a business since 1999, the martial arts is generally a luxury product uh, and therefore, your your clientele mostly will be consisting of people having a surplus income. So these are all program program elements meant to address that problem. Here, one, our dojo allows for people who do not find themselves with surplus income to train at the dojo. They train without a dues responsibility. They train for free. This also applies to their child or children. That was already mentioned. Two, the dojo has a wholesale discount that is passed on to every member. The dojo does not seek profit from any of the equipment, uniforms, and or items it sells. So let's stop there. Um, Perhaps some of the dojo cho out there use a kind of... um, dojo management like it's external to the dojo um i had i have trained members or deshi in the past you know a lot of people over the years they don't come to me only for aikido um i do train law enforcement personnel and also my my forte if i have one is either you know, I understand the cultural history. A, B, I understand empty hand and weapon integration. And C, um, spontaneity, the, the, the cultivation of spontaneity with whatever your art is. So I've trained people, for example, they come to me from different arts, Tang Sudo, uh, various classical kung fu schools and it's like you keep your forms you keep your style but we're after how do i become spontaneous with that and as a result these are these are not really my deshi per se um, they don't call me sensei i don't have a sensei commitment to their betterment I, I don't it's not like that it's more like friends helping friends and so some of those have gone on to run their dojo in an entirely different way than I ran and run mine. And uh, one of them went the full-blown commercial route. And we don't we perpetually say we are not a commercial school. And in his efforts to run a commercial school, he actually used this kind of management business that runs a bunch of dojos and they're responsible for your contracts and your collection of funds and how your programs are set up and things like that. And he was extremely successful, extremely successful. He was able to buy two houses and in in our area, that's quite, quite uh, hard to do. 
Um, he had no college education, and he, you know he just ran this business that way. And it, it's, I'm not going to call it a McDojo because he was highly skilled, and his students, who were doing what they were doing, were highly skilled, and they and they knew what they were doing. Um, but he relayed to me one time, you know, in one of our just casual chats, that he actually made more money from the selling of equipment than the dues that went with membership. And I remember when I was coming through as a, you know, younger person, and I remember I was like, okay, I'd like to join the school. Like, you know, we couldn't afford it in my family, but eventually I started getting my own job and my own money was my own money. And uh, I put myself into a martial arts school with a coupon and... Uh, I was shocked that after I joined, they were like, oh, and you need a gi. Oh, how much is the gi? And the gi was like the price of the of one month of, of dues membership. And it was like, it was basically pajamas. Like, it's not a real gi, you know. And um, that made sense in what my friend here who trained with me was, was doing. It's like, they sell that gi for like a hundred bucks. And that ghee is actually something like $9.99 wholesale. And that just felt wrong to me. And so we don't do that at our dojo. You know, that, and maybe this has to go with, um, I don't try to make money through the dojo. You know, I have a job. I'm a law enforcement officer. It's a full-time job. That's my job. The dojo is not there to make a profit. The dojo is there to live in accordance with the way and to support other people trying to do that. So we don't have these markups and these radical markups. And, you know... Again, it all works out in the end. Because as those people come to learn how the Sangha supported them, they support the Sangha. And I realized that for some Dojo Cho, this aspect, just like the first one, is like insane because you're making so much money through markup. But my advice is it'll work out. And my caveat is you may be, without realizing it, uh, dropping your diversity because you're basically catering only to those with a surplus income, and that is generally um, older white males. Meaning it's no accident if your mat looks like that. Three. If a person cannot afford equipment or uniforms, the dojo will provide them to any of its members. Four, our monthly dues responsibility, especially in light of allotted hours of instruction, is significantly lower than that of other dojo and other martial arts schools in our area. Here's a parenthetical. The dojo offers approximately six hours per day of training to four hours of 
of training per day, uh, depending upon the time of year. And maybe in, um, and additionally, every member gains their own dojo key and is permitted and encouraged to add their own training hours to the daily training curriculum. Next one. Non-members, parents of child members are permitted and encouraged to train alongside their children in the introductory children's program. There is no due, dues responsibility for this involvement. So this one, again, as I said, is probably a younger single mother not yet finished developing themselves professionally um, who's probably more targeted negatively by this surplus income um, need. And what you do when you run your children's program is you bring them in. You allow them to participate in the children's program. And this allows them to not only are they training their children, but they're allowed to work out. They're doing the workout. Our child's classes are mostly mobility and games, and uh, we work on the virtues necessary for more serious training. So courage, no quit, um, discipline, uh, etc. And they get to do that alongside with their children. And again, without any effort, just acting in accordance. Are you a Sangha or are you not a Sangha? Are you some sort of escape location where you can drop your children off and go and, and have your coffee in peace? Or are you here to value what should be valued? Which is part of the way. Value what should be valued. Do not value what should not be valued. If you have a child, you should value your child. You should value your parenthood. And if it is something that is of value to you as a member of a Sangha, it is of value to the Sangha. So now you have, instead of drop your kid off, you have, let's say, mother-daughter time in a healthy, positive environment. And why, why, why seek funds for that? You're not, you're, you know, from a business perspective, you're not teaching them. They're in the class. You're running the class. It doesn't matter how many people are in the class. You're running the class. Continuing. Next one, the infant and toddler siblings of child members and the infant and toddler children of adult members are permitted and encouraged to participate in the introductory children's program. There is no dues responsibility for this involvement. So again, going back, you're going to have a crowded mat. You're going to have an involved mat. You're going to have an invested mat. You're going to have the needed practice of sacrificing things of the old you, such as your coffee time, your girls' night out, your guys' time, your escapism. If you look, we have some videos, you'll hear kids all over, there's kids' voices. They're all kind of grown up now, but it, they were all babies when it started. You'll see them. They'll come on the mat. It's fine. 
Are we aware or are we not aware? You should be aware. You should be aware of where the walls are, where your partners are, and so you should be aware if a child comes on the mat. We have a we have a law enforcement slant to our training curriculum, and I just can't imagine that anybody calling themselves an officer worth any salt who does not notice that a child has come into the scene or the incident. It actually makes for a great training opportunity, and it's a lot more fun. Young kids are fun; they're hilarious. And, and the opposite of, oh, I come here to escape from the young kids. This is not Budo. Next one. Ascension Center's training facility includes a full weightlifting and fitness gym. Access to this facility comes with no additional dues responsibility. Uh, that's important because a lot of people do want to get in shape and a lot of people realize, especially if your training curriculum is only, you know, two hours every so often a week or less or they train that way and let's just say most of your class is talking and sitting and watching someone else do some, you know, physical uh, puzzles you're not actually working out. They want to get in shape themselves so that they would have to buy some sort of gym membership in addition to what they're paying you. Well, it's going to be hard to sell that one to, let's just say, a single mother. But if your fitness program is already in there, a person can go, well, I don't, I can, I'm actually getting uh, fit and I'm learning martial arts. Next, the parents of child members who are not themselves adult members of the dojo are permitted to train with the dojo during its physical training classes. So we allow parents, they're not deshi, uh, they can come to our physical fitness classes. They, can, they lift right, aside, right by us, with us, um, they do our Metcon trainings right with us. Everything is tailored to wherever a person is. And again, this is just an extension of the Sangha um, alignment. Next. The children of adult members who are not themselves child members of the dojo are permitted to train with the dojo during its physical training classes. So even um, that, that ability to join us for fitness goes to children not training in the dojo. So let's say a parent has a child member. The child member is in our beginner level, so this is like four years old, four to eight years old. Um, well, that parent can train with the whole community you know, during our PT classes, and so can their other children who don't belong to the dojo. They can come and train as well. And this, again, is just an extension are we a Sangha or are we not a Sangha? Next one. The dojo is, in, and, and all, I'm sorry, all that saves money. It all saves money. It all addresses. You don't need a surplus income to train here. 
Next, the dojo is an independent dojo. The dojo has no federation membership fees and no testing fees. Um, the dojo has no other fees associated with training but for the monthly dues responsibility. I remember how shocking that was to me. You know, I don't know anything. I go into the office. They have an office. That should have been the first sign. But I go into the office and... Um, they're like, okay, how much? How much is it? Okay, it's this much. Okay, I have that much. All right. Oh, well, you gotta get a gi. Here's some PJs for a hundred dollars. Also, you have to pay this membership, uh, a federation membership. What? Yeah, that's another hundred dollars. And then you're like, okay, I'll figure it out. Here's the money. And then it, you comes time to testing. They're like, you have to test. And then they're like, and here's the fee for the test. Wait, are, you told me I have to test and I have to pay you more money. It's just insane to me. And nobody realizes how this affects the demographics of your dojo. It's, it's out of accordance with nature, with the Tao. That's why it's insane. And that's why you don't have a full representation of the natural order of things. You don't have all the variation, the plethora of nature. You just have, in essence, right, a natural selection or some sort of unnatural selection has occurred and that's why your mat is so specialized. And the last one, the dojo's dues responsibility functions without contracts of any kind. And we use more of a donation model for collecting funds. Again, the, the person who's running their dojo right now in, in a more business-oriented model, this is just like, oh, this is crazy. This won't work. But this is Wu Wei in action. We either believe it because we are Budoka or we don't. Continuing. Together, these elements work to save money for individuals and individual households, while at the same time, they work to integrate the larger family unit into the members' training. Making family integration not cost-prohibitive may be very important for women, for women in general, but perhaps more so for single mothers, both of whom may not be able to afford or may not want to afford the escapism, the escapism culturally, emotionally, and financially afforded to male martial artists. These elements work together to stand in contrast to the man cave your average dojo or martial arts school often becomes and unknowingly supports. So just up front, I'm not a fan of the man who trains and his kids are at home. But that's quite common in the martial arts. You see, there's not only a financial surplus that comes with the male gender, but there's just a surplus across the board. A surplus in social responsibility. 
There's someone at home who's going to take care of that child. But this is not the case with the single mother. And culturally, there's a surplus allowance that allows for that male to leave that child at home with someone else who's going to take care of them. But there may not be that cultural surplus for the woman. She may not, in in her heart of hearts, feel any allowance nor want it. I'm going to leave my kid at home so I can go get my, my stuff on and train in the martial arts. But if you have a program where kids are welcome or kids are included, where that is the norm, because that is the natural world, there's less obstacles to her when she wants to train. Continuing. Additionally, having such a full training schedule, plus the addition of full dojo access at all times, also supports the chronological problems of being unable or unwilling to escape from familial obligations. Combined then, these elements lower the financial barriers to training. But what may be important to note is that they also work to deconstruct the material supports for male recreational space. It may not be at all coincidental and or unique that most of my male deshi that train at the dojo either have no familial obligations, limited familial obligations, or do not fully partake in their familial obligations. The same cannot be said for most of my female deshi. What may be manifesting is a psychosociological level at the psychos. Um, psychosociological level is that larger social inclusion is more vital to the woman Aikidoka than it is for male practitioners. If larger social inclusion is cost prohibitive or even socially prohibitive, all other remedies meant to address an increase in female membership may be moot. Part 2. The Social Obstacle Senshin Center operates through the historical Budo social model of the teacher-teaching community. This is common to Buddhism. Through this model, all aspects of human behavior, that is, thought, speech, and action, also Buddhist, are problematized according to the tenets of the way, and thus all aspects of behavior become a part of one's training. While this, of course, brings a depth to one's overall training. Socially, this creates a training environment of awareness, acceptance, compassion, ownership, and mutual care through the practice of service. In the end, the community rule holds that no one falls socially below the teacher and that the teacher, as well as other community members, practice self-displacement in the face of each other and in the practice of service towards all. Training, therefore, is not reduced and restricted to the mat or to Aikido Waza. This allows for a social support system to be manifested, one that aids in member recruitment and retention, and one that also works to lower the social barriers to training. I've been using the phrase Sangha. This is that. 
This is the classic traditional model for places where you went to train in a wisdom tradition. The very practices that you geared towards yourself, the very management of yourself was concentrically applied outward to the community. That's what this means. This is a matter of living the way, of being the way. This is not just exercise. Learning some techniques, learning to kick ass, that, that is not what this is. And when your goals or how you structure your curriculum is set towards goals that are lesser than these things, you're going to be out of accordance and your mat is going to reflect that. Meaning it will not be representative of the entire natural world. Continuing, this social model allows for members to support each other in things as mundane as childcare, transportation assistance, financial support, and to support each other in education and professional development, etc. Of course, this social model also allows for profound support to take place at an emotional and or at a spiritual level which is, which is a necessary part of true Budo training. Let's stop there. Again, I think if you're only training a few hours a day and your training only extends to those people with surplus income and if your classes are mostly talking and watching someone else do some sort of physical puzzle, you don't really have emotional issues or spiritual, spiritual issues. The training never reaches that deep. It's totally pastime. It's hobby. And so there's really no need for the Sangha Definitely not one in accordance with the natural order of things. But there's also no benefit from having had a Sangha. And it seems hypocritical to me if Aikido is a way of peace and love and harmony in reconciling the world, if it is a spiritual art, it seems hip hypocritical that I let those that are right next to me, right at my side, fall below me. That if I cannot self-displace there and then and serve them, Sacrifice for them. It seems hypocritical. 
But that hypocrisy is really just, I'm out of accordance. And by extension then, my mat will be out of accordance. I remember reading Dostoevsky once, and I think it was in his piece titled The Grand Inquisitor, which is part of a larger book. And in that book, in this story, which is being told from one main character to his brother, it's a story within a story. But in this smaller story, the Grand Inquisitor, it takes place during the Spanish Inquisition and Jesus comes back in, in the middle of it. And the Grand Inquisitor is looking out in the courtyard and he sees Jesus there. And he realizes, oh, this guy's going to F up what we're doing. Because he's going he's gonna to talk about what he talks about. And it's not what we do. What we do is we, we realize how weak people are and we make them, force them, torture them into following the way of heaven. But he comes here and he tells them that they have to choose it and how they choose it. And in in that way, he gives them too much leeway and they are too corrupt to choose correctly. And he doesn't realize that. So he has Jesus arrested. Brings Jesus up to him, his room in the tower. And he starts arguing with Jesus about his points about that uh, Jesus messed it up because he really didn't understand how frail and weak human beings are. That if he really cared, he would, he would do what, the, what he's doing, what the Inquisition is doing. And the whole time Jesus is quiet. He's not answering back. He's just staring at him. And during this one-sided conversation, the Grand Inquisitor utters something akin to, something similar to, I can't quote it verbatim, but it was all like, you know, you, you so do not understand human beings that you were never more wrong than when you told man to treat his fellow man like his brother. That if you understood human beings, you would have told them, treat your fellow man like a stranger. Because... Just look at our own lives. We are much kinder to strangers 
We are much kinder to those people that are far from us. We see it on TV across the globe. Maybe it's the unknown homeless person in front of the 7-Eleven. But my own sibling, no, nothing. There's no service, there's no sacrifice. There's no, I will get on the cross for you. That passage has, has always stuck with me. And I just don't want to hear about Aikido technique and peace and love if the mat is just power struggles and clicks. If it's not a place of self-displacement of sacrifice, of service, of giving. Continuing. Training, therefore, is not reduced and restricted to the mat or to Aikido Waza. This allows for a social support system to be manifested, one that aids in member recruitment and retention, and one that also works to lower the social barriers to training, which I believe I already read. Um, but pulling out again, do you see many people have a hard time training? They come to the mat with individual struggles. And that's what I mean by addressing the social obstacle. The way to address it is through the Sangha model. And it would be... It would be a pretty good hypothesis to suggest that those who have more financial obstacles might also have more social obstacles. Continuing, this social model allows for members to support each other in things as mundane as child care, transportation assistance, financial support, and to support each other in education. I think I read that too. And this is what we've seen. We have people that have helped others get degrees, helped others get into schools, helped others get good jobs, taking care of each other's children, taking care of each other's pets. And, but it's all part of the practice. 
Because if you go down the rabbit hole and you want to end up with Takemusu Aiki, you're going to have to become skilled in self-detachment, in release of the ego. And in order to practice service and sacrifice for others, it's the same exact release skill. Continuing, another byproduct of this social model is that it works to curb asocial behavioral tendencies very common to the dominant demographic that looks to train in a martial art. That is, males 18 years old to 20 years, 28 years old, as well as males that have not spiritually matured beyond their boyhood. Now, while Aikido, and I agree but slightly differently. Aikido is not about martial prowess, but martial prowess is a coincidence of self-release, the spiritual maturity of self-release, the spiritual maturity of bringing awareness to the ego tripartite. The two are not antagonistic to each other. And for a long time, decades, maybe longer, before, you know, maybe as soon as the martial arts got away from its class restrictiveness and anybody could join. It built itself or it allowed itself to be understood as aiding males to their ego duels and the years where ego duels happen. This is still the case today. So imagine you are a woman Aikidoka and uh, your mat is filled with people who are trying to do ego duels. You're, you're just going to feel alone because in all likelihood you don't demographically have this concern. There's going to be an isolating element to it. An alienating element to it, at a minimum. And where do you fit in that? How do... How do your concerns, your motivations, your aims where do they find a place? I would say they don't. But I, I'm going to go one step further and say um, 
the art is martial, but the ego duel is not of the art. And so when you have your community and you have the culture of that community, any support for the ego duel is the corruption of that community. It is an it is out of accordance. When you have a sangha, a self-release, self-detachment, service, sacrifice, you have connected yourself to powerful and ancient ways that cultures have, let's say, curbed that ego dual motivation. Let's say has turned boys into warriors. In many ways, this this ego dual mentality and all that goes into it has forever been a dangerous thing for community. It's not an unnatural thing. Just like fire is not unnatural, but it can be dangerous. And what cultures have done since way, way back is they have found a way to take this natural thing and transform it into a positive thing. And it's out of that that the world over that all of the warrior traditions are born. Because they have taken that, they've taken that ego attachment, they have taken the chemistry for violence even, and they have, through a kind of social or cultural alchemy, through the skill of of self-detachment and ego reconciliation and they have put it to the use of the community. It's no longer a wildfire out of control. The ritual and practice and symbology but through the skill of ego reconciliation It is now put in the service of the community. These classical ways have been taken from our society. We don't have them. And we're now faced with the impossible task of trying to say, uh, 
fire's bad. So no fire. This must seem so ignorant to past ages. But when you have a Sangha and it's set up through ego reconciliation, service and sacrifice towards others, when it is a place where you actually practice what your art is supposed to be, when you actually are your art with those right next to you, you don't have these overpowering males doing big man Aikido. You have people working together for each other to embody and to become the art which is not the overpowering of others. Continuing. This social model, as with the financial support elements listed above, may also work to support women in the process of completing their education and or professional training. Single mothers, recently divorced women, etc., by providing them with the village we all need to train and to train successfully. Meaning, training can occur, but not at the cost of any other aspect of one's life. Through this social model, the burdens of time constraints, limited resources, and social isolation, for example, are lessened. Additionally, Women come to secure a training space free of the harassment, prejudices, as well as free of the sexual and gender politics commonly held consciously and unconsciously by the dominant training demographic, boys. Here are some of the elements Sension Center has in place to address the social challenges of training. Social Center does not Ascension Center does not allow walk-in members. All members must first gain a pass, gain and pass a trial membership. The trial membership lasts four weeks and is without a dues responsibility. It's free. The trial membership can be extended in duration and as deemed necessary or suspended as necessary, as determined by the Dojo Cho. All equipment and uniforms are provided for the trial member during the trial membership. The dojo only allows five trial memberships to occur at the same time and therefore holds trial memberships periodically and on a limited basis per year. There is generally a three to six month duration between the commencement of a new trial memberships. The main determinant for passing a trial membership is trainability. If you want to know more of what, what I consider trainability, please go listen to episode 45 titled Definitions. Okay. Again, it is out of accordance to try to train anybody who is not trainable. And it is out of accordance to hold that everyone is trainable. 
it is also out of accordance to hold that your culture, your community is beyond corruption. It is a living thing. It requires attention, constant attention. Wu Wei is not doing nothing. It is not non-action, it's right action. Again, the business-oriented Dojo Cho might go, oh no, this is crazy. But what I have found is you can look at your financial model in terms of getting more people, but also in terms of keeping the people you have. And the person that comes in just off the street, the turnover rate is so high that it balances out financially, but does not balance out in terms of the quality of your community or in terms of the quality of your transmission. If you filter through your walkthroughs, your financial bottom line does not change over time once it gets started. But you get to keep the quality of your transmission and you get to retain members and also the quality of your community. We don't allow many new members to join at a time for reasons that were already mentioned. They are speaking a different language and if there's too many people in the dojo speaking a different language, they're not going to learn. So the allowance of how many people um, that you can take at any one time cannot be of such a degree that there is another culture operating within your dojo culture. Next, Ascension Center's children's program is a three-tiered program consisting of introductory training, intermediate training, and advanced training. While the division between classes is not age-based but rather skilled-based, generally, by the time a child reaches the advanced training program and is thereby required to train in the main adult program, these children are socially responsible, emotionally intelligent, and able to fully contribute, if not lead, in the development of the above-described social environment. So even our, our kids' program, as, it, as it's three-tiered, they're being cultured into the main program. It does, in the first, as I said, the beginner class, it's mostly games and mobility exercises, but there's a lot of emphasis on the virtues necessary for training. But it's all instilled in the games. The second-tiered kids' class is where they start doing um, actual Aikido training. Kihon Waza, things like this. And the culture, the Sangha culture, is slowly introduced. And then the next level program is where they have full access to everything. That our advanced kids class is what is more indicative of my own Can't You Say training, which I did under my teacher.
not our adult class. Our adult classes is kind of like, um, you know, we take those three kids' classes and we, we work them into the adult classes. Like, it's a tiered program, but it's not clearly outlined and demarcated. But we're trying to get everyone into that Kenshisei level training. So our kids are pretty advanced across the board. They are, they are pillars in the Sangha by the time they're in the advanced program. Continuing. The young children of adult members are at all times permitted in the dojo and on the mat during any class. So let's say you're a single mom, your kid doesn't want to train, or your kid is too young to train. They can come into the dojo anytime. They can do any class they want. If they're old enough, they can do the physical training classes, etc. The this this single mother does not have to leave their children at home and does not have to have a, a cultural space for leaving their children at home or even a psychological space for leaving their child at home. Continuing. The dojo's etiquette is clearly spelled out and used as a Vinaya code. The Vinaya is um, the Buddhist etiquette code. Expectations plus outlines for, for remedial training, behavioral corrections, as well as the process for dojo suspensions and dojo expulsions are clearly de delineated. There's no surprises. As much as everyone is aided through Wu Wei into right action, right speech, right thought, there still is a code. Everyone knows it. Continuing, at this point, it should be said that the above elements are not the products of social engineering, though obviously they can function as such and likely do. In reality, both lists are the practical manifestation of a spiritual path, one based in the skill of self-release, in the achievement of freedom from a dichotomous worldview, and in the practice of self-sacrifice and service. They are as much the worldly result of the deconstruction of the ego tripartite as they are the cultivation of a spiritual maturity that is gained through that deconstruction. However, it is the latter that holds significance at the dojo. For example, in the, in the first list of elements, it is not the lack of equality in dominant cultural roles between men and women or the unfairness pertaining to how many modern married women are now expected to work and keep their traditional roles as household manager that is being addressed. Rather, it is the escapism under which many men and even some women currently train in Aikido. It is the superficiality of a practice that has no larger social aspect or that functions primarily through an egocentrism that is the main issue being addressed. Spiritually speaking, that escapism notes an egocentricity that is totally at odds with the spiritual maturity Buddha seeks to cultivate. That escapism notes a superficiality in one's Buddha's practice, as no Buddha practice can be considered deep if it does not reach off of the mat and into those areas significant to our lives, such as family. 
like I find the male-dominated dojo off the path. I find, for example, the practitioner whose children do not train equally suspect. And this is often the case for the man that escapes his family obligations to go train. He trains not so much out of the great discipline he tends to think he is capable of, but rather because he takes advantage of a whole support system of people that do not and cannot train so that he may. This is very much at odds with the way. If he was truly disciplined, if he truly practices art at depth, it would be him that serves that support system. He that sacrifices himself for them. He that supports their own training along his own. Continuing, the dojo's financial elements are also not social engineering elements. They too are spiritual truths put into practice. For example, ask and answer. Can Aikido truly be the way to reconcile the world if it can only do so for a fee? How can Aikido be the way of non-contestation and of communion if we allow others to fall below us in the meeting of their daily life? Most Dojo Cho will think, why should I let people train for free? But I propose we think, how can I not train you simply because you cannot pay me? Like this, all of our social program elements are aimed at some cultivation of spiritual maturity, spiritual consistency, and spiritual authenticity. As this is achieved, the universe manifests itself according to its own laws, and mats become 50% women, 50% men, 50% young, 50% old. This is all about Have your dojo in accordance. Part 2. Aikido's Declining Membership Sension Center addresses financial and social obstacles to training as a spiritual practice, one not having as its goal earthly equality or equity. The goal instead is the extending of one's spiritual maturity into the cultivation practices of another's spiritual maturity. Like this, the dojo is a true sangha. This is vital to note because it is what allows these elements to bring a truer, a deeper, and more important, and more importantly, a practical end to training. And it is this practicality more than anything else that brings people to training and keeps them training, both women and men. Inversely then, I would suggest it is contemporary Aikido's lack of practicality more than anything else that drives away and repels people from Aikido. Conversely, I see that Aikido does something for my deshi. Training produces something, something real, something having a utility. Aikido Ascension Center is not theory-based. It is not this airy abstract thing that exists only as an analogy or as a metaphor or at best as a feeling. Aikido is practical, and I challenge you to find anyone more practical than a single mother. What I'm, what I'm trying to say here is when our art is a luxury, it's not real. It serves nothing. A luxury is something you can do without. 
And luxuries are demographically based. There's no way around that fact. And while there may be some women in that demographic, I would say most, if not half, are not. I couldn't imagine my mom with four kids and government cheese. She's trying to get a job. She's trying to find... and gain some level of training and professionalism where she could eventually work to getting some sort of residence for us. I couldn't imagine her saying, you know what, I need a break right now. I'm going to go exercise. It just seems so ludicrous. This is what I mean. That it's a, it's, I challenge you to find anyone more practical than a single mother. It, for, for her, for people not at the top of that bell curve for luxury, luxury surpluses, your Aikido better be real. It better be practical. There better be a utility to it. It cannot just be a metaphor or an analogy or a talking point. Continuing. For me, as an instructor, what plagues Aikido most is this loss of utility. People in general are not attracted to dead things and things that have lost all practicality practicality are akin to dead things. This is true on both the martial front and on the spiritual front for contemporary Aikido. Echo echoing Nietzsche, contemporary Aikido is dead. On the martial front, so-called martial Aikido consists mainly of big men overpowering smaller people while performing forms. Yeah, where is the, the, the woman Aikidoka going to fit into that? Continuing, due to an ignorance concerning Aikido's internal aspects, an ignorance of its overall strategic paradigm, an ignorance of its underlying yin-yang theory, so-called martial Aikido is only practical when you are facing a smaller, weaker, slower, less skilled opponent. It begs the question, how practical is this martial Aikido for women? Answer, not very often. And this is before one even points out that contemporary Aikido has lost all means of transcending form and of moving deshi from form to practical application. Big man Aikido also makes one wonder of the social environment wherein this type of training takes place. Ask, what must it be like subjectively for a woman Aikidoka to train in a place where men who outweigh her only work to overpower her? Or, what must it be like subjectively for a woman Aikidoka to train in a place where her technical success 
comes only at the mercy of men that hold back their strength and wait. Would or could such a woman, Aikidoka, really feel she was doing something practical at a martial level? I imagine some could, but they would be in the minority. And this may explain why most dojo, including dojo ran by women dojo cho, are predominantly made up of men. Spiritually, spiritually, contemporary Aikido is at best a poor man's therapy. At worst, as stated above, it is only an analogy or a metaphor for currently socially approved paradigms and political correctness. It is spiritually impractical. The best it can do is cultivate a fair-weathered wisdom and or self-transformation. But a wisdom or self-transformation that is dependent upon fair weather is not real or useful. Ask, what is the demographic effect of such artistic spiritual degeneration? Follow the money. Who has the means or resources to add a poor man's therapy to real therapy? Who has the means or the resources to replace a real therapy with a poor man's therapy? Who has the means and resources to risk little to no self-transformation? Who really has no difficulty or hardship for staying unwise and untransformed? Would it not be the person with the most means and the most resources? Would it not be the person already at the top of the social hierarchy of means and resources? Would it really be, for example, the single mother? Now you know why the mats look like they look in contemporary Aikido. Like the death of Nietzsche's God, the animus in the Roman sense of the word, the catalytic potency of contemporary Aikido has been dissected out of the art via an unconscious adoption of logocentrism and a prioritization of the intellect, which are also social markers for, this, for its dem dominant demographic. Like that dead god, contemporary Aikido no longer has the power to transform the individual through the ecstatic experience or to make the intangible tangible. An impracticality sets in, a dead art is born. Social, sociologically, as stated above, as an impracticality, this makes contemporary Aikido a luxury practice at best, and like with all luxuries, only those with a resource surplus will be drawn to it. Again, ask, is this women in general? Is this most women? There's more. Psychologically, in a Jungian sense, it may very well be that women beings, perhaps more able than men, to comfortably walk that line between, this, between spiritual ecstasy and tangible materiality, would look at contemporary Aikido and be repelled by it. Its fakeness, its inauthenticity, its impracticality outside of its luxury status may actually be more psychologically detestable to women than to men. For what it's worth, it is usually my women Aikidoka more than my men Aikidoka that exhibit a deep and negative gut reaction to videos of fake Aikido. The answer then, in my opinion, is not adopting more progressive solutions, themselves a continuation of logocentrism and a prioritization of the intellect, but rather to discover, in an archaeological sense, the animus of Aikido 
to bring Nietzsche's God back to life, so to speak, to rediscover Aikido's practicality, both martially and spiritually, to make and keep Aikido a living art. Aikido must rediscover or reclaim its Buddha roots in order to address its declining population. It must rediscover its martial practicality, and that rediscovered practicality must be used to help Aikidoka discover their true self. Like this, Aikido does something. Like this, Aikido is something worth doing. That concludes part one and two. Part three is made up of the women uh, Aikidoka, my Deshi's uh, member submissions to that two that request for two to one to two paragraphs on why they train at the dojo. I have not read these. I did not read them when I posted them. Um, let's read them now. Um, so they're not edited either. Again, I said they're going to be anonymous, so bear with me. I don't know if they're typos or things like that. We'll see what we see. First one. I first came to the dojo for my children. After observing Validus Sensei with the children, I immediately knew I wanted them to be taught by this man. I watched every single children's class my kids attended, and after four years, I felt a very strong pull to begin training myself, even if I didn't understand what I was seeing in the adult classes. I knew it would be a long and difficult path, but I knew commitment, and I knew once I started, I would be in it for the long haul. I trained to be a better mother, sister, daughter, and human being. I trained to learn the most difficult art there is, to release the self and ultimately find union with God. I train at Sension Center exclusively because here all aspects are on the table, heart, mind, body, spirit. The lessons are so profound and all-encompassing that one learns not only Aikido as techniques are concerned, but learns to go beyond them. Also, learning the history, martial viability, religiosity, and spirituality, all aspects of the self are addressed and problematized as I learn to let go of what I think I am, to become and do things I never imagined possible. I have now been training 10 years, and my daughter continues to train as well. Next. I initially came to the dojo because I wanted a career in law enforcement. I wanted to get stronger. I wanted a challenge. I wanted to learn how to defend myself. However, I realized very quickly, fairly quickly, the ignorance of these wants and that there was much more to the dojo and the training. I currently train to be a better version of myself, to work on spiritual maturity, letting go of the physical, material world, and ultimately letting go of my identity. It is from my understanding that from this you are forever free, unbound, and able to love unconditionally. The dojo is a lifelong training. It is a path you follow until you die. This is why I train, and I will always remain training. 
next. I train because you saved my life. While I'm better than I was before after training more, I realize that I still have a long way to go. I want to become like you. And you are willing to help me get there. So I train with you. Next. I train at our dojo for wellness and discipline. To have somebody hold me accountable. To face my fears. To have something to measure myself by. To reflect on my life and the choices I make in it. I train to maintain good mental health and physical conditioning. I train to keep good relationships with the people in my life. I train to try to become more like you. Next. On a physical level, I train because I want to be well and stay well. On a material level, I train because I want to win and because I do not want to be taken by the world as many people around me seem to be. On a spiritual level, I train because I want to be enlightened, but my desire for enlightenment, that itself sounds materialistic, so I train to rid myself of the attachment to this desire. Next. I train at the dojo to maintain mental, physical, and spiritual wellness, not only during training, but in every other aspect of my life as well. I train to maintain fitness and mobility and to keep good relationships and manage conflicts in my life according to the way. I train to improve my fear reconciliation as well as develop the skill of metacognition. I train to learn how to live my life properly and according to the way. Next. I have been training since I was three years old. I was raised in this dojo. For me, it is important to be strong, strong of body, mind, and spirit. Training helps keep my mindset in check and keeps me on track so I don't veer from the path. To help keep us on the path, we use the four disciplines, diet, sleep, exercise, and worldview. When I feel myself struggling with something, I go back to these disciplines to help get me back on track. Training helps me see past everyday distractions and not get caught up in the drama of my school peers and others my age. Training helps me prioritize things that are important and keeps me less stressed. I feel better when I train, and I enjoy being surrounded by like-minded people. Next. I do not train for any reason other than to train is to die. I train to become physically strong, flexible, and agile. For otherwise, the body withers, weakens, and decays with age and unuse. I train to become mentally sharp and challenged by continuous learning, deliberate practice, and striving for improvement. Not to do so is to let the mind soften, atrophy, and become unwell.
I train to become aware, compassionate, and loving, not to be one who pushes, controls, and causes suffering. Not to do so is to let the spirit sicken and to become separated from others and from God. Through daily confrontations with my limitations of self-displacement, fear reconciliation, and ego detachment, I train so that I can hope to become the best version of myself that I can be. I train to release myself from the chains and bonds of my sex, age, history, or culture. Unburdened and freed, my heart is lightened, and laughter, joy, beauty, and peace rush in like a wave. I train so that my death will be another step of my training. Through training and in training, I find life. Not to train is to die every day until death. I train with Sensei because he understands, sees, and knows. He has been to and through the depths, practices what he preaches and teaches, lives the path, and sets an example of how to be in the world, but not of it. His wisdom and compassion and capacity for love are not of this earth or of our time. To paraphrase a quote by Max Lucado, Sensei loves us just as we are, but too much to leave us that way. Next. I train at the dojo to gain an understanding of awareness, strength, and value. Through Sensei, I was able to learn all of these, and I am still currently trying to improve them. Through awareness training, I become more conscious of my surroundings. With strength, it helped me improve much more physically. For the longest time, I wasn't able to do chin-ups, but through the techniques and training, I'm now able to. As for value, through Sensei's words, I've gained a deeper understanding of the meaning of the way of the warrior, of life, and much more. Next. I train because I want to get stronger and increase my awareness more. Ascension Center is a training facility, but it's also a family. Sensei knows his students inside and out. Here, the training is more personalized to the people who are in the class that day and their skill level, and I want to improve in the art. And the last one. Training at the dojo is a way of addressing all of the baggage you have accumulated throughout your life. You don't even realize how lost you are until you start training and make the commitment to change. And strangely, you don't realize how much you are changing until you look back. I have found that training in Aikido challenges you to confront all of your emotions and helps you to reconcile those emotions by learning to acknowledge your fears, your frailty, your lack of humility, and your general lameness. Over time, you become stronger, less fragile, more humble, more giving, and less afraid. It gets to the point where even though it can be hard to stay committed to your practice, you realize it's completely necessary to your overall well-being. Another bit, Another benefit of training in a traditional dojo like ours is that you are training with others who are also committed to their practice. So you're surrounded by people who are strong, humble, and genuinely caring and giving. 
I have found that these characteristics are almost impossible to find in people outside of the dojo. There's no words for me to say. And I have none anyways. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R dot com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.